Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 56 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. I want to talk about the word lament. Lament. It's a great word, but I bet you haven't used it at much, if at all. And leave it to the 14th month of 2020, wink, wink, to inspire me to do a podcast focused on lament, lamenting and lamentation. Lament means to bemoan to moan, wail, or cry in a state of grief, mourning, sorrow, or anguish. That's why I think it's a great word. It encompasses that mix of emotion that is grief, loss, and anguish, when just one word can't quite express it all. You know, unless you are quite young, You have probably experienced that mix of emotions to some degree or another, especially in this past year. And I doubt any of us under the age of 90, at least in the West, have experienced the level of grief, loss, and anguish that 2020 and now into 2021 delivered. And it's because of that I wanted to talk about Lament, lamenting, or lamentations. If you're my age, or which is 68 or younger, and live in the West, you have not experienced the level of global lamentable circumstances we have been experiencing. Yet, all of history is filled with the stuff that causes lamenting. You know, wars, pestilence, floods, fires, plagues, That's the stuff of lamentation. And although Buddhism is frequently characterized by the Buddha's teaching on suffering, Buddha's sutras and related teachings speak of lamenting only in ways that highlight how it is to be avoided. You know, getting on with it, letting it go so as not to fall victim to the second arrow of suffering. Of course, That is to be understood based on the Buddhist teachings of the Four Noble Truths. He taught that one, suffering or discontent is part of every life because it it is that nature of the human condition. Or as I wrote in my book, you know, life is crappy sometimes. And number two, noble truth number two, the cause of suffering or discontent or crappiness is grasping to things we want and pushing away things we don't want. Noble truth three, he taught that there is a way out of this discontent, disease, suffering. And four, the way out is by following the Noble Eightfold Path. 
Now, looking at Buddhism from that perspective alone, which is the way many who I would refer to as secular Buddhists understand and practice Buddhism, that makes lamenting a sort of a no-no. And it's sort of an allowing yourself to grasp, which then causes more suffering. It wasn't until rather recently when Buddhism began by being taught through the filter of a psychological lens, you know, the book, The Wise Heart by Jack Kornfield is a perfect example of this. And when the psychological lens started being applied over the Buddhist teachings, it did provide a sense of tender spaciousness around the conditioning of suffering. Now, granted, the Mahayana path does emphasize compassion, compassion for the suffering of others, and only more recently, as more psychology was combined by some teachers, was compassion for ourselves included as a part of the deal. Now, this is a good time to issue a word of caution before I go much further. Remember, this podcast is Everyday Buddhism, and I do not pretend to be a scholar, nor do I personally practice in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition. So some of what I'm saying may strike you as biased. And I am, of course. I am biased by my own perspective, by my own study, my own practice, as we all are. And I may even strike you as a heretic, which to some Buddhist traditions I may be. But since my Buddhist worldview and practice is formed from the non-sectarian lineage of the Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism, whose teachers come from both Zen and Jodo Shinsu, or Shin Buddhism, a bit of heretical view comes to me through that lineage, especially if looking at things differently will help people in their everyday lives. You know, the Shin Buddhist thinking that is a major part of the bright dawn school of oneness can be traced back to Reverend Kiyazawa Manchi, a great Japanese Shin reformer, and his student, Haya Akagarasu, the former head of administration of the Higashi Hunganji, one of the two dominant subsects of Shin Buddhism in Japan. Akagarasu was a major inspiration to my teacher's father. He was my teacher's father's teacher. And Akagarasu was a key leader in the formation of the Dobokai movement, Again, another Shin reform group. Now, the Dobokai movement started in 1947 by a group of practitioners calling themselves the Shinjinsa, or True Person Community. I like that, True Person Community. I would, it could be translated today as the everyday person. The grassroots reform group was in part led by Akagarasu and other disciples of Akagarasu's teacher, Manchi, Kawazaki, uh, Kiyozawa Manchi. So with my reformist declaimer duly noted, that reformist tradition is part of my Bright Dawn lineage. So with that duly noted, 
I'm going to go back to lamentation. I've been thinking about this a lot for a few months now. And I mentioned earlier, historically, great mass suffering was more commonplace. As I referenced, unless you're older than I am, you haven't experienced the type of widespread suffering, and I mean suffering, not just discontent, that we have been living through for more than one year. Before 2020, we had experienced individual suffering, sort of the discontent stuff, and bigger suffering, the suffering within families and local and regional suffering typically caused by natural disasters, but not the type and scope of global and national suffering we've experienced since early last year. You know, I can't be sure, but I'm guessing most of you have suffered through many moments, many days, many weeks, and maybe months lamenting over the change in our lives. You know, mental health professionals report people seeking treatment for depression, anxiety, and sleeplessness as going through the roof. Young people are committing suicide at an alarming rate, and the sales of liquor has increased throughout the period. And I, like many Buddhist podcasters and teachers, have offered thoughts and practices in hopes of helping us all find ways to build our resilience and to learn methods of accepting, quote, what is, unquote. You know, I've talked about sitting with and accepting discomfort, but I'm not sure it was helpful in counteracting the prevailing Buddhist sense of striving to be dispassionate, to not identify with the self that feels the suffering, because that self is a construct caused by ignorance. Under the seemingly endless conditions from the pandemic, social unrest, domestic terrorism, and increasing natural disasters of fire, floods, and freezing from climate change, causing great suffering for thousands and thousands of people and hundreds of thousands in this past year, I have looked around at myself and others and wondered if more help could be offered. Something beyond the teaching of accept and transcend or the counsel to do more meta practice or more practice of Tonglin of the giving and taking. I have sometimes witnessed a disconnect between a secular Buddhist ability to wholeheartedly engage in ultimate compassionate practices like metta or Tonglin to the point of like being able to experience a shift or a softness around themselves or others. With many depending on a primary practice of mindfulness, It's no wonder they might feel lost, alone, and desperate under the weight of this level of suffering. Because of what I've noticed, I started wondering about the traditional teachings of Buddhism as maybe being just not up to the task, not up for the entire job during times like this. Traditional Buddhist teachings aren't lacking in their core wisdom, but maybe lacking in an everyday presentation for times such as this. 
Now, unless you are more of a religious Buddhist, that is, that the religious Buddhist that might embrace the actual metaphysical-ish type teachings of the 12 links of dependent arising, karma, and rebirth, you know, fully embracing and living with a strong grounding independent origination where you know that seeing yourself as a suffering ego is the ultimate cause of suffering. And because of that, it helps. You know, dependent origination goes like this. Sensory contact leads to pleasant and unpleasant feelings. And then those feelings lead to a kind of craving to possess the pleasant feelings and therefore avoid the unpleasant ones. And then that leads us to identify with some phenomena, the pleasant ones, and consider it part of us, ourselves, while we separate ourselves or push ourselves away from other phenomena and consider them not-self. Now, this identification with and separation from phenomena effectively effectively generates our self-perception, leading to the development of an artificial, but nonetheless greatly suffering ego. So that's sort of that traditional approach of Buddhist teachings, that unless you embrace wholeheartedly beyond what may be the typical mindfulness practitioner or secular Buddhist practice, unless you embrace that completely and you have a strong foundation in that, and it's the rock you stand on through all your sufferings, you're pretty much left with, and I am being facetious here, suck it up, buttercup. So the starkness of this teaching that is the prevailing theme at the very core of Buddhist teachings is the commitment to enlightenment or the extinguishing of that fire of desire that causes our suffering. To see the ultimate ignorance and transform it, transcend it, and therefore not suffer the second arrow, no matter what the situation or circumstances surrounding us. For example, here is a part from the story, The Stream of Tears, found in the Samyutta Nikaya from the Pali Canon. So the story goes like this. The Buddha asked the monks whether the stream of tears shed as you wandered through your many lives, the, quote, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, unquote, is greater than, quote, the water in the four great oceans, unquote. And the monks answered what was considered the correct answer to the Buddha, that indeed the water from the tears was greater than the waters from the four great oceans. So then the Buddha goes on and asks the monks this, for what reason, he says? Because, monks, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is enough to experience revulsion toward all formations, enough to become dispassionate toward them, enough to be liberated from them. And this was from the book in the Buddha's Words, edited by Bhikkhu Bodhi. So, according to the story, the answer here, according to the Buddha, is a liberation from suffering comes from building a dispassionate view towards all phenomena. And not just dispassion, he says revulsion. Now that is a problem for me, considering 
the circumstances we now find ourselves in in the midst of this pandemic. You know, maybe for well-trained monks, but what about the rest of us? Another challenging aspect of understanding suffering is this. What about sorrow? What about lamenting? Is sorrow at the death of a loved one necessarily the suffering that the Buddha taught us to abandon? Should we remain untouched by the death of a loved one? You know, I haven't found many details of sorrow and grief in the Pali Canon, but the ones I have seen are similar to the story I just shared. I'll share another one. Um, and this is about the loss, the death of a loved one. In the Kudaka, I think I'm pronouncing that right, Nakaya, a poem about Yuburi, who was grieving, who was the grieving mother of a child named Jiva, who passed away many years before. The Buddha is said to have taken pity on her and counseled her this way. Jiva, my daughter, you cry in the woods. Come to your senses, Uburi. 84,000 all named Jiva have been burned in that charnel ground. For which of them do you grieve? Now, as you can see, that's the, 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 the typical Mahayana Bodhisattva sort of view. It's like, but it's also the view of the Theravadin. It's like, we should be grieving for all those who grieve, which doesn't say a lot about what to do with our immediate grief at that moment. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem very helpful. And it strikes me as a bit harsh. The Buddha continues to teach by pointing beyond the self, turning Uburi's personal tragedy into a lesson about the tragedy of all life in hopes that she will find freedom for her own grief and release her from clinging to her own small ego-based aspects of the tragedy. You know, that really works really well when you're being impatient on the freeway, but I don't know about grief from the loss of a loved one. And this teaching counseling style continues to repeat whenever grief or sorrow is mentioned in the canon, even in the Buddha's relationship with his attendant Ananda, his beloved Ananda. For example, when Shariputra, the Buddhist, great, the Buddhist greatest disciple, passes away, Ananda is just inconsolable. And the Buddha's response to Ananda was to admonish him, saying, quote, But have I not already declared, Ananda, that we must be parted? separated and severed from all who are dear and agreeable to us? How, Ananda, is it to be obtained here? May what is born come to be, conditioned and subject to disintegration and not disintegrate? That is impossible, unquote. That's like saying, gee, I'm sorry you're hurting, Ananda, but like, I already told you that's how it goes. That's how life is. So these classical teachings from the Pali Canon make it very clear that the Buddha's response to all suffering, great, small, individual, worldly, was that we should expect suffering from life. And that is true. And that acceptance and preparation for it is the only thing that can help stop the resulting sorrow from expanding from a more simple pain into the realm of 
of the second arrow of suffering or intolerability. All the stories the Buddha teaches emphasize that there is dukkha in life, but that suffering is optional. So there's that sense of discontent, but to suffer over it is optional and unnecessary, something that can be let go of. He teaches that in the letting go, one does not change the unsatisfactory nature of reality or the pain it may sometimes inflict, but only one's own internal relationship to it. And according to the Buddha, that is enough. So here's my heretical question. I told you I was a heretic here. Here's my heretical question or my critique. Is it enough? It is helpful for sure. But human beings, being the way we are, when suffering is continually piled on suffering for months and months and months like we're living through now, is it helpful for us now? At this stage that we're in, barely mastering mindfulness? Everything we ever knew as our life is undergoing losses and continuous, profound change. So grief and sorrow will surely arise. And how do we meet that? How do we meet that with compassion for ourselves and others if we haven't been able to come to some sort of acceptance that the Buddha teaches we need to have first? You know, both the Hebrew and Christian Bibles have multiple references to lamenting. The Psalms are full of poems of lamentation. And there was a whole book called Lamentations in the third section of the Hebrew Bible or in the Old Testament of the Christian Bible. The act of lamenting is accepted and not necessarily a, quote, bad part of the literature of the monotheistic or Abrahamic religions. In fact, many Jewish and Christian teachers explain the experience of lamentation as a spiritual practice. The Book of Lamentations focuses on the grief, pain, and suffering of living in Jerusalem when it was besieged, plundered, and destroyed by the armies of Babylon. The poet writing the book laments and protests about the suffering. He details how terrible it is and calls out for God to hear him and and hear his people and help them. Now, even if you don't believe in God, or even if you've had a negative experience with Christianity, the Christian religion, the Bible, or whatever, the stories there, the stories in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible, the stories they tell are stories of people, of the human condition, stories we can identify with despite our belief or disbelief. So in this particular story, in the Book of Lamentations, it emphasized to me the importance of giving a sort of sacred space or sacred dignity to the emotions we feel in response to injustice and to suffering. Stories like this have the ability to connect with others during their suffering. And as if a Buddhist story the poet who wrote the Book of Lamentation 
provides no tidy answers at the end. He just continues to lament. He pleads, quote, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Or have you utterly rejected us? Are you exceedingly angry with us? Unquote. Boy, that line sure sounds like what we've been screaming for the last, what, 14 months? Renew our days as of old. Now, I know what you're thinking. There is no God in the sky with the big white beard sitting on a cloud, making judgments and meting out punishments. So pleading like this is foolish, right? Who the heck should we plead to then? But I bet at some time during the last year, you have cried out in your heart to restore life to how it used to be. Just, just like the poet or prophet in the Lamentations. You have cried out at the injustice of not being with a loved one in the hospital or nursing home as they took their last breath. So why did you cry out? Who are you crying out to? The why is that human life is full of suffering. Yet for most of us, it's never been like this. We are like the Israelis destroyed by the armies of Babylon. We look around and everyone around us is suffering and nothing is the same and why not cry out? Even Titnat Han talks about honoring your suffering and pain as if they were the cries of your own self as a small child. And how would you respond to that small child? With more tenderness instead of teaching? There, there, you would say, I know it hurts, and everything seems awful, but don't worry. I'm right here with you until you feel better. See, there is a time for teaching, and there is a time for tenderness. I believe learning to lament is an uncomfortable, especially for Buddhists, yet important part of our spiritual growth. There is so much worth lamenting in the world right now. So it's a good time to practice calling out from our hearts and allowing our hearts to break open if they have to so we can take up the pain of the world and share it. A prayer of lament and grief doesn't have to be to God. It can just be an expression of grief and sorrow as a crucial part of the experience of living in a broken world, the broken world the Buddha talked about. When we lament the darkest moments of our life, we are at our most humble. And it is from that place, true compassion for yourself and for others, and then true acceptance is born. But the compassion comes first. When living in this broken world, no matter how painful, there is always a faint, faint, faint ray of hope. And in following that small glimmer of hope, I frequently find myself in gratitude and peace. Again, from the Book of Lamentations, 
Chapter 3, verse 29 of Prophet says, quote, put your lips to the dust and you will have hope, unquote. Now, this teaching strongly echoes Buddhist teachings and the teachings I find in Japanese psychology about not escaping the reality we find ourselves in, but fully embracing it, putting our lips to it. And one of the ways of fully embracing it is lamenting, crying out, shaking our fists and heads at the suffering, injustice, and confusion. In doing that, we can eventually reach a place of active acceptance where we will or possibly can transcend our suffering, where we will see that faint glimmer of hope. But I believe to fully embrace our circumstances, we first need to lament. From the book Dharma Breeze by Nobu Haneda, which our everyday Sangha right now is studying together, I have another story to share. Haneda recollects a story of Hideo Nishimura, who was Christian. The story goes that Nishimura lost his son to suicide. Now, Nishimura was a teacher. Experiencing that, humble, experiencing that death of his son humbled him completely. He realized that he never really knew his son as a person because he didn't talk to him, but he did a lot of preaching and teaching to him. He remembered some of the last words his son spoke to him. His son pleaded, Dad, speak to me. Come down to me. Come to my level. And when Nishimura was continuing to mourn the loss of his son, he received a letter from a friend quoting those words again from Lamentations 329, where the prophet says, Put your lips to the dust and you will have hope. Now, according to the story of Nishimura that Haneda reflects on, this quote from Lamentations was about coming down from a high position or a spiritual position up there beyond the suffering. And instead, Haneda teaches it is about coming down to reality and, quote, identifying oneself with the nitty-gritty basis of human existence, unquote. Now, this teaching strongly echoes Buddhist teachings and the teachings I find in Japanese psychology about not escaping the reality we find ourselves in, but fully, fully embracing it. And as I said in a previous episode, the suffering we experience from 2020 that has come along with us into 2021 in a journey we all continue to share, there are still so many things that we can't control and we can't fix. We can embrace it as real and we can lament it. Shunru Suzuki writes about things that can't be fixed, and he gave a tough answer. He wrote that there is only one way, he said, accept the problem and work on it through meditation. He said the only thing that really helps is to find some ground to stand on, understanding that you are here right now. And there is some truth to that. Understanding that you are here right now is not about being in a high spiritual position. It's not about tr transcending it and uh, saying, well, that's just the way life is. It's about living in the way life is. It is based on understanding 
life as it is, no matter what life is doing to you right now. And part of that understanding is that we all have, even though looking around us, it seems we have no control, we do have some control left. Not control of others or what is happening in our country or what is happening in the pandemic, in our world, but control of our own minds. But we do still need to keep going. And we need to keep going together. We do so by remembering where we are is where we all are as humans. There's a relationship there. It's not just this is how it will be if you do this with your mind, as the Buddha taught. It's that we're all there trying to do this. The Buddha taught this in the First Noble Truth. He taught that we will experience suffering, but we must remember he also taught that the suffering can be diminished and ultimately eliminated by the power of your own mind. And from where you sit, listening to this podcast, you may in fact be filled right now with despair, or you may be filled with hope. You may be in pain. You may have lost someone. You may be young. You may be old. And wherever and whomever you are, feel free to lament because I'm lamenting right here with you. We are in relationship. Lamenting doesn't make you less than, but instead it humbles and grounds you to a place where you can see that we are all here, all here with you. It may look different where you're sitting than where I'm sitting, but I am here right now just as you are, and we're all lamenting. I can't provide you answers to where we go next. I can't eliminate the external conditions that cause our suffering. But I can promise you this, that you can find some peace by just sitting in the questions, sitting in the confusion, sitting in the anger, sitting in the fear, and even crying out and lamenting. And when you do, you will notice that your pain, your anger and confusion will wash up and out like waves. Yet you will remain in a little small shelter of peace, knowing that we are here with you, feeling the same pain, the same confusion, and holding you all in our now opened hearts. To close, I will share a part of an essay extolling the benefits of sitting alone, but yet feeling communion with everyone and everything, even through tears. Many of us right now are lamenting and bemoaning the fact of how alone we feel we are right now through this pandemic, more alone than we want to be. We sit alone far more times than we would like to be. But we can feel a sense of communion in the fact that we're all in this same place in this life right now. So to this essay that I'm going to share was, this part of an essay that I'm going to share was written by Haya Akagarasu, the teacher I talked to you about earlier in the podcast. And it's taken from the book of his, Shout of Buddha. Quote, there are many things I want to hear from my friends or discover by reading, but I cannot satisfy my hunger by listening to friend or unburden my chest by reading the messages of saints and teachers. Communication with words and articles irritates me. I get a feeling that my mind is cut off from my mind. 
But when I'm sitting quietly by myself, I feel such a warm communion with others. Without reading or writing or hearing or speaking, I melt into the rhythm of nature, which cannot be read or written or heard or spoken. Then I shed tears, and I smile. Out of the depth of tears, the miraculous spring comes forth. I know all beings in the lonely self and taste communion in this loneliness. It is not enough to say I am thankful or reverent. These words do not enough express my mind. As I walk, I bow my head, and my eyes move with the rhythm of nature that flows under my feet. Tears form and fall. The blood dances in my veins, and I go to the life of the unimaginable one, unquote. May it be so. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget that you can join me and others in the private donation-supported Everyday Sangha that meets virtually via Zoom every other week on Thursday evenings at 7.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. And please consider supporting the efforts of this podcast and related groups by becoming a community member for $5 a month. And if you do, you will have access to blogs, members-only podcasts, education series, a private Facebook group, and hopefully more to come. Even if you'd like to join the Everyday Sangha, which is also donation-supported, you can do that for a minimum of $10 a month, and you also become a member of the membership community and the Everyday Sangha. And even if you can't join the Everyday Sangha meetings at 7.30 p.m., we do record my Dharma talk on those meetings, and they're available for uh, viewing online or download after those Thursday meetings. So thanks again for considering those things. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for rating and reviewing. And until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better.